Hello, welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. This episode of Out West highlights efforts to return natural fire to Western landscapes. Wildfire and forest management, including the expanded use of prescribed fire, managed fire, and cultural burning, is a high priority for Western governors. Today, WGA Senior Policy Advisor Bill Whitaker leads a conversation about the various ways that fire can be used to restore Western lands, as well as barriers to its expanded use. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Out West, the Western Governors Association podcast. I am Bill Whitaker, a senior policy advisor with the Western Governors Association. I handle forest, range, and wildfire management issues for WGA. We're here today to discuss the restorative role that fire can play in the Western landscape and to learn the work that experts are doing to safely get more fire on that landscape. This is an issue that's near and dear to my heart. I was a wildland firefighter for eight years for the National Park Service and the U.S. Forest Service. Our guests today are Lenya Quinn-Davidson, the Area Fire Advisor for the University of California Cooperative Extension, and the Director of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. Ron Good, the North Fork Mono Tribal Chairman, and Laura McCarthy, the New Mexico State Forester. So each of you are experts in a particular kind of fire management, whether it be prescribed fire, managed fire, or cultural burning. Can you share with our audience the basics of the fire management technique that you employ and perhaps one way that it differs from the others? We can start with Lenya and then move to Ron and Laura. Yeah, sure. Um, And I just wanna say what an honor it is to be on with Laura and with Ron. I've had peripheral work with both of you over the years and um, really respect and admire the work that you both do. And I, I have the honor of talking about prescribed fire, which is actually kind of an umbrella term that captures um, some of what Laura and Ron will be talking about as well. <clears throat> it's really the use of fire in, under specific conditions to meet you know, predetermined objectives on the landscape. So that can have a cultural emphasis or um, a larger landscape emphasis. It's, it's really a broad term. And we use prescribed fire for a a wide variety of objectives in land management, um, including habitat restoration and invasive species control and um, management of cultural resources, as well as fuels management. So it it really is a a broad term and it's all about people connecting with and using fire. Thanks, Lenya. Ron? Good afternoon and uh, manahu to everybody. So, Again, uh, as Lenia said, um, thank you for inviting us. And um, the one thing I want to start with is that these terminologies, um, prescribed fire, managed wildfire, cultural burning, these were not uh, known techniques before as terminologies. We just applied fire. Fire is just a tool. Fire has always been a tool. And how we use fire is pretty much the same as what uh, both the ladies already described. We do broadcast burning. We did prescribed fire, if that's what you want to call it. Um, We did wildfire management. All a part of the intent for cultural burning 
is to restore our culture, our cultural resources, so that it would enhance our traditions and that we'll be able to carry on our traditional way of life. If you don't have the resources available to you, then you can't continue your, your traditional way of life. And so that's what creates the cultural aspect of fire when we're saying cultural burning, uh, we're burning to restore. And the one, I don't really know how much of a difference it is. What I do know is the agenda and the ultimate goal and purpose of um, cultural burning and broadcast burning in the way that Native Americans do is, you know, a see-through forced. You need to be able to see for a quarter mile through the trees because you lived out there. You lived out there on the land and your children, that was their playground. But that's also the playground to the lions and the bears and everybody else that's out there as well. And so the important part of your goal of burning is to keep the forest to keep your homeland open so that you can see. And so when Native Americans were burning, they burned to try to keep their forest and their, their, their openness of their land to 40% or less. And so that's a little bit of what um, cultural burning is about. Thank you, Ron. And Laura? So managed fire is when you take a natural ignition and decide that the conditions are appropriate, that it would be safe and you would achieve a benefit from having that fire burn and not be extinguished right away. What's really important about it and what makes it different from the other types of burning is that there's a lot of monitoring that has to happen to make sure that should conditions change, you'll be able to extinguish the fire or suppress the fire. The good that can be accomplished is considerable. And when the conditions are right, generally when it's pretty wet, you can really achieve a beautiful forest. And uh, I'm conducting this interview sitting in front of a photo of a forest that has been managed for a hundred years with managed natural fire and probably by Native Americans before that. Great, thanks, Laura. So I'm gonna start with some questions for Lenya. What are some of the consequences of excluding natural fire from the landscape for the last hundred plus years? Well, that would be a long list that we could spend many, many hours talking about. But I do think it's important for people, you know, in, the, in this current context of all the wildfires in the West, and especially here in California where I am, I think we tend to, um, to think about fire exclusion and fire suppression just from a fuels perspective. And, you know, thinking about fuel buildup and, and fire hazard and these catastrophic, catastrophic wildfires that are happening. But I also like to think about 
how much has been lost in the absence of fire and, um, and all the, the habitats and the species and, and the, the forest structure and composition that's all been changed by not having fire. And so in, in the area where I live, and I know this is a big issue for Ron as well, where he is, um, we focus a lot on oak woodland conservation and restoration with fire, bringing fire back to those places. And they're one of these keystone habitats where we really see the absence of fire that they, they can't persist on the landscape. And so we're really losing them at this remarkable rate because we haven't had fire as part of the system for so long. So I just urge people when you think about 100, 150 years of fire suppression, we're losing so much um, in addition to, to having this increased wildfire you know, severity and, and problem. But, um, and then of course there's, there's the, the cultural pieces that we're losing as well. So it's really a complex, complex puzzle and fire needs to be part of that picture. And you're the director of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. What is a Prescribed Fire Council? Prescribed Fire Councils emerged in the southeastern U.S. Um, decades ago as a venue for different groups, organizations, agencies, individuals who are working with prescribed fire and trying to use prescribed fire to start to break down some of the barriers. So they tend to be regional or statewide groups that are interagency, interorganizational, and work on policy barriers, training barriers, and um, really just provide a venue for coming together and talking about successes and lessons learned and you know, potential for prescribed fire. So we, we formed the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council in 2009. And at that time, it was the first prescribed fire council in the Western U.S. And no one had really heard of, of a prescribed fire council out here. It was kind of a new concept in the West. And what it did in California was really provide a, a platform for people to come forward and talk about prescribed fire and think about all the reasons why we weren't using it at any kind of meaningful scale. And we still have a long way to go, but I think the Prescribed Fire Council opened up some important dialogue and connections and really built a community around prescribed fire that wasn't there before. How do land managers work to get communities more comfortable with the concept of prescribed fire? You know, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of focus um, on public understanding and public support for prescribed fire and, and thinking about public out outreach campaigns and things. And we're really at a point where people understand the importance of prescribed fire. There's, um, it's a lot different than it, it was, I think, 20 years ago. All these fires that have been happening, the, the whole context is, has changed. And so I think land managers do, um, do need to work on transparency and, and trust and describing the projects that they're doing and why they're doing it and why it's important and what the benefits are. But it really, the public outreach piece is not the only thing that we need to be working on. I think we're at a point, at least in California with prescribed fire, where we know we need more of it. And it's time to start having like harder policy conversations about what are the enabling conditions that we need to create to make that happen. And some of those issues are actually internal to the agencies more than they are external public issues. So um, I don't like to get too bogged down in talking about public support because I think it's there and I think we need to look inward as a fire community about how we can do more. Thank you, Lenya. And I've got some questions for Ron. 
Can you please tell me more about the North Fork Moto and your role as tribal chairman? Sure. Um, we are an Aboriginal tribe that's been around for thousands of years. We have uh, 1.4 million homeland acres, which takes in all of Eastern Madera County, a portion of Fresno, Mariposa, and Indio counties, and uh, most of the northern section of the Sierra National Forest, a little bit of uh, Yosemite Park, and a little bit of uh, Devil's Post Pile in the back. So <clears throat> um, we have, of course, a, a lot of issues and, and everything that um, we, we deal with, but our, our primary target is our culture keeping our culture alive, which means that we have to keep our resources um, available and in good health. Uh, we have over 200 cultural resources um, that we utilize and some 95 different food uh, sources that we harvest on an annual basis. That doesn't mean that each person harvests all that or utilizes all that but uh, as a tribe, we do. And so we try to make sure that our area is where we've always gathered, whether it be our acorn or our berries or our roots or our basketry sticks, um, all of these things need to be cared for. Um, in part, when we are looking at the current fire situation that has been going on. We had the Creek fire here, which is coming on 350,000 acre burn. Um, it's burning brush and what was known as cultural resources to us at one time that haven't been burned for over 120 years. And so it's just, you know, igniting it calls the fire, it asks the fire to come and burn because the landscape needs to be burned. When the fire gets there, then the fire calls wind and wind comes. We have descriptions of tornado type winds going up the canyon. We have mono winds coming down off the mountain. All these things were, you know, all a part of this big, huge fire that we just had. And uh, it created its own weather system inside of it, um, all sorts of things. But when we really go back to why, we go back to, you know, the fact that many of these places that are burning are inaccessible. They have no access. Uh, roads have been cut off by the, the agency management. And a lot of them, you may have private lands out there um, in front of places that the used to be able to go to. So our areas of harvest and restoration are very limited uh, within, within the lands. And that's what pretty much caused uh, a fire like this. And then you, of course, got to couple that with drought and, and the bark beetle infestation, which killed about 150 million trees. But the reason I bring that up is because you asked a great question to Linnea earlier about fire suppression. The fire suppression only came about from the, um, the Euro-Americans 
concept and philosophical concept that they needed more trees. And so they wanted more trees planted and this is what created fire suppression. And so when we look around and we look at the bug infestations, we are looking at, um, you know, thousands of acres that are all the same size, either 25 year old trees, 50 year old trees, and they're all bunched together like little toothpicks. So, you know, the bottom line is, is that the forest has not been tended. There's no, no tending the garden. Nobody's been out there taking care of it the way that it's supposed to be taken care of. And when I use that word burning, I'm using it from the sense of the indigenous people worldwide. We have a very close uh, relationship with Western Australia Aborigines, the Mardu, who've been here to our land and we've been there to their land. And so, you know, the idea is that um, being a burner is a very prestigious uh, thing in your tribe. And so um, that's how important it is. It's not just being able to go out there and light a match and set it on fire. And so I've got some questions for Laura. How do you work with communities to increase their acceptance of managed fire and how do you align any concerns that they might have? Well, I think that acceptance of managed fire is really dependent on the conditions. And as a tangible example, I can point to last year in New Mexico, which was a particularly and even unusually wet season. We had both uh, an above average snowpack and then we had actual rain in May and June. And that was the ideal condition for managed fire. And uh, I can't recall the, the acreage total, but I can think of two particular fires that were each more than 15,000 acres that moved around a bit, put up some smoke, but there was really never any question that they were gonna explode. And we got questions about the fires uh, and there was some mild concern, but it was the perfect time to be managing fires. Fast forward 12 months to this fire season where we had a below average snowpack, almost no rain in the spring, almost no monsoon, and there wasn't a single managed fire this year because the conditions were so different. And I think one of the lessons from that is that the public has some level of trust in our fire teams, uh, an emphasis on the word teams, that it's not individuals. These are teams of people with diverse sets of expertise that work together that provides some comfort to the public that decisions are being made very carefully. The second part of your question, though, is about 
allaying concerns. And I think it is important to recognize uh, or to make a distinction between, you know, the rational mind and the emotional mind. And the rational mind can hear facts about that are science-based facts about how uh, a fire today can help prevent a catastrophic fire next year or in five years. And in terms of smoke, even a pay me now or pay me later, maybe you'd rather have your smoke in manageable uh, chunks. Smoke's not really chunky, but maybe you would rather have your smoke in man a manageable dose uh, as opposed to having to endure what people in on the coast of California had to endure this year where the smoke was was beyond bearable versus the emotional side uh, where there's a lot of fear, especially when there are evacuations involved, uh, displacement of people and um, and also smoke brings discomfort with it for the majority of humans. So allaying concerns, I think has to appeal to both the rational and the emotional responses to fire. How do firefighters know when it's a good time to use managed fire? It has to do with current conditions, with forecasts for future conditions, and resource availability. Those are the three main variables, I would say. And if you're deficient, in any one of those three, or maybe you happen to have a pandemic going on, you would decide probably not to do use managed fire as a tool. When was the concept of managed fire first used by land managers and is its use increasing? I think it definitely is increasing. And I think of the Gila National Forest and that is a place where managed fire has always been a thing. And they never have had a time on the Gila National Forest in the, in the wilderness where they excluded fire. And uh, I believe there's another forest, national forest in Montana, uh, that also has a track record that's somewhat similar to, to the Gila. Uh, but as the others have alluded, policy is a real barrier to all kinds of fire management and use. And so the term managed fire, you know, there's a real history there. It goes back I, you know, from my own perspective, like to the Yellowstone fires in 1988, where there was a let it burn description that then became very politicized. And uh, with the National Fire Plan in the year, well, actually, 1995 was a key year when fire ecologists from many of the federal agencies, uh, I believe led by the Park Service, um, 
put together a seminal policy document on the natural role of fire. And that's where the managed piece started to come back in. And it's since then, it's been an evolution of coming to understand that fire suppression is never, it's not going to work. And it's, it's going to, it's going to result in a lot of destruction because it's out, it's beyond our control. It may have been in our control from 1910 up until, you know, the 2000s, but, but it no, that is no longer an option. And so managed fire in some form is going to be necessary as, uh, Ron and the uh, all Aboriginal people know. Thank you, Laura. That's really um, fascinating. So, in closing, I've got a question for everybody: How do state, federal, and tribal leaders work together to get more fire on the landscape? And we can go, Lenya, Laura, Ron, on this. Well, I think prescribed fire councils are a really important venue for for some of that dialogue and that collaboration and. Um, when it gets to on the ground work among federal and state agencies and tribes and other, um, you know, non-governmental organizations and, and private groups, we do need the, the infrastructure and the agreements and, and, you know, kind of these more, um, well, yeah, it is infrastructure basically to allow those folks to work together. So we're seeing some of that come about, you know, California recently had that shared stewardship agreement that was signed um, between the Forest Service and the state of California to allow for more cross boundary work and, and kind of represent a shared commitment by the state and federal agencies in California to do more work together and to meet more targets. I guess the piece that I feel is still missing is, um, is more of a vision for what we want with fire and moving forward. And it's not just about acres. I feel that we get really bogged down talking about acres of treatment and acres of wildfire. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try to get to a million acres a year or, uh, you know, Cal Fire is going to try to do 30,000 acres a year of prescribed fire. I don't find the acres a useful metric for this work. I think we need to be thinking about what our values are that we're trying to conserve moving forward and that we're trying to promote and how can we be strategic and, and use fire in, in really in the right ways and in the right places and with, with all the right people. So I hope that we can explore that and as we work together that we can create a little more vision around our future with fire in California and, and throughout the West. Thank you, Lenny. Uh, same question to you, Laura. Uh, if I were to answer with a single word and the question being how, I would say planning. And uh, I do agree with Lenya about the vision part. And so in New Mexico, we've just finished our next 10-year forest action plan. All states are finishing their forest action plans because they're all due December 31st. And we used ours to set out a vision of how fire is to be managed and used. And so now we have a blueprint that we can follow. That's at the statewide scale. And that planning gets state, federal, local 
and tribal leaders on the same page. At another scale, there are a lot of tools that are available, such as the PODS, which I think stands for Potential Operation Delineation. PODS is actually a better word <laughs> to me. Uh, and, and it's um, uh, at a scale of several hundred thousand to million-ish acres, people from state, federal, local, and tribal leaders come together. And before they are in a position of managing, whether it's natural or prescribed fire or cultural burning, they make some decisions ahead of time about how they will, how fire will behave on that landscape, what values are at risk, what places are important to exclude fire from because people are living there. And it's very effective. If you have a plan, it's a lot easier in the moment to take the right action. Thank you, Laura. And finally, same question to you, Ron. Um, yeah, finding the conversation uh, very interesting. Uh, from my standpoint, I think we're about 50-50. We still have, so we have the prescribed fire uh, councils in place, uh, Northern California, um, the one that uh, Lenya belongs to has a number of really good tribal participants. In the southern place where I'm at, we have tribes that are uh, listed as partners, but not really good participation. Uh, not always invited to be good participants either. So we've got a little ways to go to get that type of involvement. Um, likewise, when I'm working with the, the various agencies, we have what's called a Good Neighbor Act, and it involves state task force, county task force, um, CAL FIRE, you advise all a number of partners that will work with the federal agencies, um, but you don't find any Native Americans on any of these task force that are, you know, as far as part of the main part of their planning and uh, implementation of them. Uh, I wanted to kind of finish with the fact that uh, what, what the fire that we put on the ground um, I make sure that I invite, invite, you know, all folks. I have um, a dozen tribes. I have uh, half a dozen colleges. I have um, um, numerous agencies, including, you know, federal and state agencies and task force. Um, if you've got an interest in burning, then, you know, my door is open for you to come in and, and burn with us, learn what we're doing. So try to get a better understanding of what our end product is. And what is our end product? Our end product is, is what I started with that, you know, where uh, you need to have that open space. You won't have the kind of fires that you have right now if you have that kind of an open space. But when the Native Americans were burning, 
They burned every day. We have, we have diaries from the 1800s, first settlers that came in, 20 years they wrote diaries. And they would say they opened up their door before sunrise, six o'clock in the morning, and there's them damn Indians out there burning already. They got six, seven fires going, you know? But that's exactly it. They constantly burned in small amounts all the time. This is what I'm trying to stress to the agencies. You don't have to burn 500 to 1,000 acres every time you burn. But, you know, their goal is to burn 10,000 acres a year. And best they've done in the last 30 years is 1,500. You know, they don't get to know, you know, no three or 4,000. It just doesn't happen. So, again, burn all the time, burn small. Then you're not affecting the people down in the valley. Then you're not affecting the, the, the smoke particles. You're not affecting the bad air. So, all sorts of things that can be accomplished by burning smaller, but burning more often. Thank you, Ron, and thank you to Laura and Lenya. It's been really interesting conversation um, just to really get into all sides of this really important issue and just the really challenging efforts to get more fire on the ground. So I really appreciate your time. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West, presented by the Western Governors Association. To learn more about our ongoing work on wildfire, forestry, and range management, please visit westgov.org. And be sure to join us next time as we continue to discuss critical issues facing the Western United States. Finally, WGA would like to thank Lenya, Laura, and Ron for sharing their expertise on prescribed fire, managed fire, and cultural burning. Happy trails, everyone.